We're going to be picking up on page 33 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. I'll start with this idea, though. God can only give you success wherever you go if you believe that the problems wherever you go are God's gift. If you believe that the problems are not from God, you will try to fix them on your own. And you will probably find yourself fighting God from time to time. And as Christians, when we do that, he tends to chastise us. He lets it get worse until we bump our head enough to realize, oh, maybe I don't need that as much as I thought. Or maybe I thought I wanted that, now I got it, and oh, I didn't want it at all, but now I have it. That kind of discipline is common in in the Christian life. And I'm not going to suggest to you that you can escape your cross. Don't try to escape your cross, please. You will have a cross. Jesus will give you a cross. You will carry it. It will hurt. It will feel painful. Life will not be everything you want it to be here and now. But you can believe that it is everything God wants it to be here and now. And that therefore, so far as he is concerned, he has given you everything you need to have an amazing day today. Even if you die today. Even if you die a bloody, awful, unjust death today. You have everything you need to be content for the rest of the day and to face that death with your head held high, confident in who your God is and how you're not going to die forever no matter what they say. Again, God can give you success wherever you go when you believe the problems are God's gifts. There are no problems. There are only God's gifts. And that they are opportunities with which to apply the word of your faith to the world around you and to trust that God will supply solutions. Problems are for math, right? Repentance and trust is for Christianity. And so Joseph finds himself in the dungeon of Pharaoh. And, you know, you might think Pharaoh, this guy, like had a lot of money, ruled over a big kingdom. I bet he had nice dungeons. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure that back in the day, they went out of their way to make the dungeon less nice, right? Like we have all these things where people do evil and we put them in jail and we have all these rules about how you have to be nice to them there. That's really new. (laughs) really, really new, right? Um, What it used to be was uh, you put them in jail and you let them suffer because they earned it. And so Joseph finds himself in the bottom of this, right? He didn't earn it, but there he is. And can you imagine like no light? No light. Maybe fire comes in sometimes and someone else has it. And the smell alone Ought to turn your stomach, and that's before you think about the chamber pot that doesn't exist. Ah, and there he is. I mean, if there's a place in time to decide God abandoned you, I suppose that'd be it, right? I'm not going to say to you today, my faith would be strong in that moment. I have lots of prayers and dreams, and if I end up in an actual dungeon, rotting in my own flesh and my own feces, with people next to me in the same state, I pray my voice says, Jesus Christ is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. But I'll admit right up, you know, that's not easy. In fact, it's impossible as far as we're concerned, right? I can't work my heart up to that. But God has promised that he will provide. 
all the spirit that you need for today. He's going to do that by showing you how Joseph, where he was, did what Christians do. It doesn't tell us he cried out to God, but you better believe he was praying. And then as he prayed, he did something else. It does tell us that he took care of the prisoners. He saw himself in a deplorable state, Le Miserable. (laughs) And he decided that rather than squalor himself among them and rank himself down amongst it, that he would believe his God was with him. And that his hands, whatever they were for, they were at least to care for that other guy who couldn't even lift his own head. And this guy, he's been lying in his own pee for weeks. So he cleans that up and he takes care of this and that and he prays and he remembers again that it's only gift. And the gift was those people. And the gift was their need and him remembering that God remembers the weak and that he'd been sent in that moment to care for them. Now, I'm not trying to build Joseph up to some kind of perfection. I'm sure he struggled a great deal with the doubt. And really key to all of this is, does he remember his dream or not? Because as we'll see, Jacob really doesn't. His father back home in Canaan, he really does not remember the dream, nor do the brothers at all. They are all convinced that he is dead or gone forever and that whatever promises God gave to him in that dream, they aren't coming true. Remember, the dream is that they're all going to see Joseph as something of a king in which they all bow down to him. And at this point, they don't believe that. They think he's dead. Which you might say, well, that's reasonable of them. And it kind of is, except these are the grandkids of Abraham and Isaac. And we know that Abraham and Isaac had a faith that was given to them in which Abraham could say, okay, Isaac, I'm, and he didn't say it, but he'll, I'm going to kill you, Isaac, and God's going to raise you from the dead because you're the promised seed through whom the whole world will be saved. Well, Jacob gets that to like all his kids. And then, and then here comes Joseph dead. But after Joseph says, by the way, dad, I had a dream just like you, kind of different, but just like you, God told me what he's going to do in my life. And Jacob says, I kind of believe it, but shh, don't say that stuff, right? And now here's the rainbow coat of many colors. Don't miss the typology of the promise of God soaked in the blood of a lamb. Jesus is right there. Yeah. Um, But here comes this coat. And does, does Jacob see Jesus? Does he see the rainbow? Does he understand the power of a blood sacrifice? He only sees my son is dead and there's nothing I can do and I give up entirely. Wait, there's Benjamin. I'm gonna hold him tight. And remember when all this happens, Benjamin is like two initially. Right. Uh, so, so does Joseph remember his dream, though? Because he had said, you know, I had this dream. You're all going to bow down to me effectively. And now there he is caring for the squalor of the prison. Does he remember? And I suggest to you, yeah, he does. And from time to time, he remembers with passion and faith. And from time to time, he's not so sure. But he just does what's in front of him. He continues to pray to his God according to the name he's been given. And he continues to help those who are around and beneath him. They're beneath him. And he considers that meaning then it's his duty to care. And of course, you know the story, right? That he gets put into charge of the prison. Because once the the guard comes by, he's like, oh, wow, it doesn't smell in here. Hey, I like you, guy. Can you help over here too, please? Right? He puts him in charge of the whole thing. And then then our story really picks up in in chapter 40, where it, it all goes spinny for a bit. Now, I'm going to throw you a date. I don't have the date I gave you last week um, of uh, uh, the year that Joseph was was uh, enslaved, but I can tell you that the year that Joseph 
uh, excuse me, the year that the cupbearer and the baker have this dream. And we can pin this down in history, and it's 1888 B.C., which let me just say for the world. So B.C., before Christ, you got that, right? A.D., Anno Domine, it's, it's Latin, means year of our Lord. Okay. But now they're all changing that, right? So now they have the before the common era and after the common era, which just, okay. I just want to point out how, 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 how utterly stupid they are that the common era still begins with the birth of Christ. It's just like, how dumb can you, if you're going to make a common era, like make it 1776 or something, right? They're, they're idiots, these people. And I, forgive me, but like, really, we have to see that when they put their paganism to ply, it builds stupid stuff. And that's why so many things are wrong in our country right now is because dishonest men build stupid stuff and then it doesn't work. And yes, were we great? Did we have honest men? Yes, we did. Do we now? It doesn't look like it, does it? So what do you do? Again, while you're in jail with Joseph, what's under you? What's beneath you? Put your hand to what's in front of you, not far away. Let your mind be on the stories that are yours, not somebody else's, right? And then know, again, this, is, this story is yours. That God's always working behind the scenes with things you can't even see coming. So that, here we are, page 33, checking our time. Uh, chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, in 1888, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So, I mean, this is high-end position. You know, Michelin chef, if you know what that means, Right? And, you know, the butler's butler. I mean, Jeeves has nothing on this guy. Yeah? And, and, but they somehow, in the political intrigue of the court, you know, where everything is a meaning and did he sniff for a reason? Or was that a secret message? In, in, in it, they, they, they piss off the king. <laughs> yeah. And uh, verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, uh, chief cupbearer, chief baker, put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So they end up being put in the prison where Joseph is. But now notice this, verse 4. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Let me suggest to you that this prison does have layers, and there's a white-collar section, and there's a blue-collar section. And in the white-collar section, you know, when you come from Pharaoh's presence and he may let you back in, and it's kind of, who do you know? And did you have enough in the bank accounts to pay for it, maybe? And these kinds of things, right? Uh, that he doesn't let you get all smelly yet. Uh, he keeps you kind of clean because he might come back to court. And so Joseph's there now, really lifted up. He's like entertaining dignitaries, effectively, right? caring for them. And then, well, what happens, what happens next? Um, verse 5, one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer, the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, his own dream each, each dream with its own interpretation. And the morning comes, verse 6, Joseph came to them in the morning and saw that they were troubled. He could tell something was up. You know, how, how good are you at reading the nervous state of others? Um, well, he, he was, and he asked. He didn't just say, how are you doing, guys, right? He's like, I see you are troubled. Uh, what's the issue? Why are you downcast? I love the way that the Hebrew talks about emotions, right? You have, you have a shining face or you have a downcast face. That's the way they talk about you know, feeling bad or feeling good. Um, it's beautiful, really, to think on. Uh, but they, they tell him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Uh, we, we picked up this dream idea last week. We're going to touch on it this week. I'll probably come back again. I, I don't have a way to tell you 
that I know what God means or does or how dreams work. What I know is clear is that the ancient world all believed that dreams ultimately were given by God. Ultimately, they were given by God. Uh, and that in this, uh, the ones that you remember vividly were worth trying to understand. And that in this, uh, if it truly is from God, it's true. It's true. It's not going to be false. There are false dreams. There are true dreams. We looked last week at Jeremiah. It says, stop telling the false dreams. Stop making stuff up. But it's clear that from the start of God's revelation in history, he does give dreams not only to Christians who have the Holy Spirit and the word of God, but also to pagans who have no connection to him whatsoever. And when he does so, it is the intention to draw them to Christ. Which is why it shouldn't surprise us, even though we know that most miracles have ceased to be kind of the you know, cast-out demon kind of thing, that nonetheless, across the world today, there are people of other religions, Islam specifically, who confess that they came to Christ because of a dream. And I'm not one to tell them with their Bible in hand and their faith in Christ in that Islamic land that, it didn't, no, it didn't count. <laughs> I'm not ready to do that. Even though I don't look for dreams and visions, I don't expect God to talk to me in dreams. And if I have a crazy dream, I don't assume it tells the future at all. The real issue, in fact, the real wrong thing to do with a dream, with any dream, is to assume it's about the future and try to tell the future. That's the thing God in Torah and the Old Testament says, stop that. Stop trying to foretell the future. That's called fortune telling. <laughs> right? This is what a witch does. And then in this, what they do when they do this, since they're not very good at guessing usually, is they try to talk to the dead, which inevitably means demons are involved. Hence, it's forbidden, right? It's forbidden um, for, for very good reason. Telling the future is forbidden. But that doesn't mean that God can't reveal the future. And then when he does, he does it clearly and without question. Yeah? And that at times this indeed happens in dreams. And Joseph is a master of this. He will say himself, I didn't learn this. God just makes me know it. It just happens, right? Uh, so what do we do with this now? I want to encourage you to consider your dreams avenues to understanding your soul. Really. Your inner spirit, your inner life. When your dreams are happening, that's you talking to yourself. And in this way, it's God talking to you, but not as like God Almighty revealing things from heaven. It's more like he built your body to say certain things, and they are true things. You know, one of them might be, I need more sleep. You know, well, if you have the thought, I need more sleep, God said that to you. I promise. Why? Because it's true. It's true. You need sleep. Truth is from God. Lies are from the devil, right? He owns all the truth. And so again, when he wants to give it in dreams, he does. He does. Acts chapter 2 is worth thinking about. I don't know if I'll get there by the end of the sermon. If I can, I'll bring it back. If not, we'll maybe hit it next week. But consider looking at Acts chapter 2. It talks about dreams in the New Testament era. And it's, it's worth pondering. Okay, so their dreams specifically, we're going to kind of shorthand this. Um, they, they effectively have a bunch of symbols that mean one of them, the, the butler, the cupbearer, he's going to get to go back to court. That's a good thing. He gets restored to his position. He's back to the big job. He's got the nice perfumes and everything, right? He's, he's, he's living life. Um, that's, the, that's what his dream means. And then the, the baker, uh, his dream is like the opposite of that. It's like, well, sorry, dude, you're dead pretty soon, actually. And it's just going to be, well, it'll be fast. It won't be torture, you know? So, yeah. uh, so th that, that's the dreams that they're given. And lo and behold, it absolutely comes to pass within the few days of the dream. Uh, I think it's three days. I haven't looked again. Um, and, uh, 
the result of this, though, is also one more thing that Joseph does say to the, to the cupbearer. No. I know you're going to go back to court. I'm in charge of this prison because that guy says I'm a good guy. And so I'm going to tell you this, I'm innocent. So remember me, remember what I did today for you. And remember what I, what I can do, in fact. I'm pretty good at these things, he says. 1888. Well, you know, 1886, uh, two years later, Pharaoh has his own dream. Uh, Cupbearer, he's been living the good life. He forgot about Joseph. Joseph's still down there in prison sweeping. Or maybe pushing pencils, you know, clay tablets around, moving stuff around. I don't know. Uh, but chapter 41, page 34, next page. After two whole years, 1886 BC, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Uh, that had to be really cool. The Nile is a giant, giant river. Uh, the Missouri is kind of small. And Mississippi's not so big, really. Yeah, the Nile is huge. The Amazon competes. Uh, and so he's standing on the bank of the Nile. I mean, golly, I know that's, that's a, that's a massive thing. He's like looking at mountains or something, right? So there he is in this massive moment. And then they come up out of the Nile. Here's his dream. Seven cows, attractive and plump, fed in the reed grass, right? So you, this beautiful bounty of a herd animal that's a sign of wealth and prosperity. It's definitely good for you. You can use all the parts of it, this kind of thing. And they look beautiful. And there they are by the Nile. And then, verse 3, behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile uh, after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. Now, I don't know that... You know, in Pharaoh's dream, these looked like zombie cows, but I've seen some comic book work of this story and, and they have them like zombie cows, like, like their guts are open and their, their bones are showing and they got their teeth and then they come up and they do, they do what happens next. The ugly thin cows came up and ate the seven attractive plump cows and Pharaoh woke up. So it was like an amazing beauty, these glorious cows and the zombie apocalypse, I'm awake. He goes back to sleep and he has another dream. Pretty much the same thing, maybe a little less zombie grotesque. Verse six, you know, uh, verse five, excuse me. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Uh, you know, I think we get used to some of our uh, modern grain. I'm not sure how many ears of grain should be on one stalk, uh, but this is, this is bounty, okay? This is super bounty taking place. Um, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And you get decay and plague coming across. Uh, and the thin ears, the plagued ones, swallowed up the seven plump, full of ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. You see, again, the ancient belief that the dreams speak. Right? And this is universal. The Hebrews believed it too. They just recognize that there's false dreams. So you can't, every dream doesn't necessarily come true. But, but when there is a true dream, it's going to come true. And again, New Testament, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. Now in these last days, he's spoken by his son. No dream, no idea, no thought, no hint, no feeling should, shall ever supersede the actual written word of God. So if anybody takes what I've said about dreams today and goes off and denies the scriptures because they had a dream, I mean, you're not listening. But if you have a dream, 
in which you dream about things that are in the Bible, thank Jesus for that dream. Because that has to be a restful night, I imagine. I haven't had such things. I would love them, honestly. So, well, Pharaoh has not such things. He has one of those where you wake up in the cold sweat, go to bed, and you're back in the same dream again. Ah, I've had those. <laughs> and those are scary. And then he, call, he does what any reasonable guy would do. He calls the shrinks, right? the psychologists, the psychoanalysts, uh, whatever you want to call them, the magi. I like that word. It captures it well. Magi, meaning both majesty and magic. Uh, majesty meaning the understanding, able to say what is going to work. Yes, if you light this powder, it will explode, right? Like magi. Uh, it looks like magic, though, but it's not. But it can be, especially if in confusion they believe, you know, Things like drink this blood, it will make you super powerful, right? stuff like that, right? Cut up this chicken heart and see what the future has to say, right? So the Magi world was like that as the IRS <laughs> and the road system builders, right? And every other governmental position you can imagine, right? It's all fused in the one thing. And Pharaoh, so he brings them all together. He's like, I had this dream, you know, UN. <laughs> I mentioned the UN meeting and the, the president stands up. I had this dream, guys, right? And, and what, I, what I don't understand, though, and I said this last service, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know how on earth the Magi do not lie. How they have the most powerful in the man in the world asking and tell me the meaning of my dream that they don't just kind of take a good guess at it because that's kind of what they do for a living actually is lie take a good guess at it so i just don't understand why they say they don't know but they say no they don't know they don't know and then cupbearer you know jeeves oh <laughs> i may have forgotten something sir what's that i forgot a young man in the prison who can solve all your problems yeah and and so uh joseph is is brought to pharaoh and I would imagine that, you know, he goes through some change. You know the Esther change that happens when she's brought to see King Xerxes? How she goes through all this perfuming and all this stuff to make her clean? I mean, I'm going to imagine Joseph goes through this kind of stuff. He gets shaved, right? He's, he's dressed like an Egyptian now with some gold or something on, being brought just into his presence. He can go right back to jail. But he's, he's being brought into his presence, and in the king's presence, it's different. That's why liturgy is the way it is, by the way. So uh, he, he gets brought into his presence, and he tells him the answer to this. So we're not going to read through it, but uh, I, I will give you the answer. Actually, I do want to get I do want to get it. Uh, we're going to look at verse 16, verse 15. Chapter 41, verse 15, page 34. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph's words are really cool here. He answered, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so Joseph, even though he does have the ability to understand dreams, he recognizes that each time it happens, it's only because it was a gift, which gets us back to where I started. Success is recognizing that every moment is a gift. Here he is, pulled out of prison to stand before Pharaoh, dressed in all this stuff. I mean, can you, you got stage fright ever? Can you imagine? The whole court's around looking at him. He's pushed out in front. And if he answers wrongly, I mean, there's a good chance he gets tortured or something like that. And he's going to stand there and say, don't you sweat it, Pharaoh. I don't even know. Jesus knows. And then out of his mouth comes what, what it means, which is that there's going to be seven years 
of plenty. Right? Yeah, I think you know the story enough to know. I don't have to go into the detail here. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine to follow. And oh, by the way, Pharaoh, while I have your ear, let me tell you what's good for you. you know, never, never, never let a buttonhole moment go to waste. You get someone's caller and they're listening. You might as well talk about Jesus. Uh, he says, uh, you know, well, what you should do is put somebody wise and discerning in charge of keeping food during the good years so that there's plenty of food during the bad years. And I don't want to demean Pharaoh here. I think he probably was a very smart guy. But there's almost this moment where you could see perhaps they weren't as smart as we think. Because he's like, that guy has a good idea. He's in charge now. So Joseph's ability to put two and two together so it equaled four was so stunning to Pharaoh that he just fired everybody else. So don't diminish your own capacity to outspeak the world in ways you cannot foresee because the Psalms and Proverbs are on your lips and suddenly things change around you. and You might not even know what you did and that it's all good and okay because that's the word of God. That's what it does. So here, here is, you know, again, Joseph throwing it out there. You know, this is the right thing to do as a leader, as a shepherd, to, to care. And Pharaoh puts him in charge, puts him in control of everything. And I want to I get into some stuff I missed last service. So we're going to search for it here, make sure we get it. Um, yeah, I think 37 of chapter 41 is where we're going to read from. Where this proposal that Joseph throws out there pleased Pharaoh and all his servants Pharaoh said to all his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Small tangent here into Egyptian mythology and or Egyptian religion, which uh, I know you've been exposed enough to it somewhere. You probably know the name Ra, right? You probably know the name Horus. And you probably know something about like men with bird faces and hieroglyphics and stuff like that. What's, what's most probably important to know is that Egypt is like a 2,000, 3,000-year country with many, many, many different regimes between the Noah's day and, and the day that well, Jesus comes. Now, again, 1,200, 1,500 years before Joseph gets there, Egypt's like off the boat. Ham's kids go west, Egypt, okay? And, and so uh, this... This religion that they have at the time that Joseph comes about in the middle kingdom is not the same religion they're going to have by the end of the new kingdom, which is the Exodus and after the Exodus, okay? 400 years later. It's not the same religion. It is closer to Noah's religion than to the mythology we now dig up because we can't get far enough back in the dirt to find what they thought in the super old. Or again, what we do find is not as developed, meaning it hasn't been twisted away from the truth quite as far. And so, I mean, who does God look over and when? When is it enough that you knew of Abraham's God and that's all you had to know? When does it switch? Clearly, Jesus' name today is the name you must know, the name you must call on. Uh, But back here, not exactly sure so when, again, Pharaoh says, in whom is the spirit of God, well, they capitalize it, that's not in the, in the Hebrew, but the idea is pretty, pretty clear. Pharaoh is speaking about the great almighty God, who various persons, Ra, you know, in the Egyptian religion, kind of overshadow at a certain point, they kind of take that case. 
But I want you to believe that this Pharaoh, he actually believes there's one true God and whatever else gods and myths and stuff, he, he is more afraid of the one true God. And, and in fact, this dream is part of what scared him. And now he's convinced this guy knows how to talk for that one true God. Um, and then, I mean, this gets better. 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Right? Can you imagine someone saying that today? Oh, you're applying for a job? You're a Christian? Oh, I know. You. I'm going to promote you right now. No one will be as wise and discerning as you are. Can you imagine anybody saying that today? Like nobody would say that. It's really not in a movie, right? Except the fact that it's, it's actually true. You know why? Because we're honest people and most people are not. Right there. You're a better worker. Straight up. Yeah. And, and so Pharaoh's Right here, right? He sees this. Uh, you shall be over my house, he says. <laughs> you know, I got some, some duct work I need done, right? Uh, all my people shall order themselves as you command. The right hand of God is where Joseph is ascending in a sense here. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I set you over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand. That means Joseph is Pharaoh to everybody except Pharaoh. That's what that ring means. Like, he immediately is given power to turn around and, like, kill people if he wants to. And now, Pharaoh might, you know, stop him. But, like, that's the power he was given with this ring. It's, it's quite something. Um, put it on Joseph's hand. Clothe him in garments of fine linen. Put a gold chain about his neck. That'll be a, an office, an authority thing um, for people to see. And he made him ride on his second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he sent him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah and gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. It's that religious stuff there at the end that I, I want to zoom in on and I find uh, so so fascinating. Uh, but we're also going to start with, I think I put that one away. Oh, goodness. The name of this pharaoh we know, right? 1888, 1886. And did anybody write it down last service? It starts with an S. Hmm. the third, something like that. We know this pharaoh. And we, we can kind of, from the dating of the Egyptian archaeology, know that he wasn't a young man at this time. And that as he puts Joseph in charge of everything, uh, he, you can maybe see that then as in his older age, he's finding a young administrator. He's pretty happy about this. And he will then, in fact, die uh, in the first year of the famine. So I suggest you consider that means he even converted to Christianity and is a type of fulfillment that God gives a lot of times in history to men who he says, repent and I will raise you up. And the, the horror that's coming, it won't touch you. And that's exactly what happens to him. He puts a Christian in charge. He listens to what the guy says. That he cares for the people. And then he goes to rest with his fathers before any of the famine, which was going to come, comes. He doesn't even have to see it. What a thing. So then he, he rightly and interestingly then names Joseph Zapnath Panea, which um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible, this gets translated as, it's really cool, uh, the savior of the age. That's pretty cool. Zavnath Panea. Uh, but then uh, in, in, I believe, uh, Hebrew, Egyptian, I forget which one of the two it is, 
um, it's Hebrew. Uh, it means God speaks, he lives. Which if you can't hear Jesus Christ in that, I don't know what you're listening to, right? He names the guy he has risen, kind of. Right? Not on purpose, not really knowing, but sort of with an inflection. He names him, God speaks, he lives, and he marries him to Asenath of Neith, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. This is fun stuff too, I think. But you have to come at it from all the stuff you know about, say, Athena is like added to. This is the seed of Athena. Athena becomes a warmonger and a bunch of other stuff that that Noth or Neith never does. But Noth or Neith, who comes to be absorbed into things like Minerva and Anitha, uh, Athena much later, um, uh, she is the goddess of wisdom. That is her primary function. Okay, So in their pantheon, which I'm not suggesting is true, I'm saying they still had false gods, God's calling Pharaoh to repentance. But in that pantheon, God lives, he speaks, marries one who's named Asenath, which is Isis of Noth, favored one of Noth, favored one of wisdom, the daughter of the priest of the city of the sun, that's Hierapolis. His name's Potiphera, gift of Ra, that's Jonathan in Hebrew, by the way. Uh, and, and in all of this, can you see that Joseph, who he lives, he is risen, marries the daughter of wisdom? And then together has two sons. One son's going to be named Forgotten, and one's going to be named Double Bounty or Fruitful. Right? Manessa, Forgotten, uh, which potentially is because he has forgotten his homeland. He's become a sojourner in a foreign land, and though he has this huge mansion, he, he doesn't have his brother Benjamin, his father. Uh, so forgotten. Or, or maybe it's, you know, I was in jail for a long time, but you know what? I'm not anymore. It's forgotten. I'll allude to Jesus. My past is my past. My future is my future. Today is good. It's forgotten. It could mean any of those things. Scholars argue about this. But tying it in then with the double bounty, two boys who will then become two tribes in their own right as Joseph does get a double blessing uh, from Jacob. Uh, and, and all this, um, this is part of Joseph's ongoing, what is it? Trust, doubt in his dream. It has to be that. Somehow, some way, he now has seen part of his dream come true. Remember, he has a dream that his father, his mother, and his brothers are going to bow to him. Now, they're not doing it, but everybody else is. The whole world is bowing to him. So he has to kind of remember and know why doesn't he go search for them? I don't know. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze. What I want you to get is the humanity in the story. See the humanity in Joseph. Have it, have it resonate with your own because I know you have your own versions of this kind of thing and especially the family dynamics that are going to take place. As, well, again, what happens? Uh, verse 46, Joseph is 30 years old. Uh, that means he's pretty young, really, to be over a whole country. Uh, we get the stuff about um, the naming of the boys in verse 51. The seven years of plenty occur, verse 53. The famine comes and, and the rest of those verses there. And then we end up in chapter 42. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you, why do you stand there? You know, why are you just looking at each other? Uh, don't you know there's grain down in Egypt? 
uh, go down by grain that we may live and not die. Um, ten of his brothers go down. Jacob does not send Benjamin. The sons of Israel come to buy grain uh, among Egypt. So there's a couple of things there. You know, Benjamin is, is a big, big thing. And what I, what I want you to see, if you can, is how natural it is to make an idol out of your child. It's so natural that you do it. Don't even pretend you don't. Please, please don't pretend you don't. Please don't pretend you won't. Please don't pretend you can't. We all do. The question is, when you find the temptation to idolize your child, which occurs like this, to protect them from all pain and harm and to make sure they're happy at all times, that's how you know you're idolizing your child. Uh, when that happens to you, uh, when you begin to do that, you are going to wreak pain, not only on that child, but on everybody else that child comes into contact with. You're going to spoil the child. I don't know if Benjamin was spoiled or not, but what I know is that Jacob is not acting in faith at this moment as he tries to protect Benjamin's life. Because again, he had the dream. The prophecy was given. He just doesn't believe it. And I'm not just talking about the prophecy to Joseph. I'm talking about the prophecy to Jacob, that his sons are going to be a blessing to the world. And if he really thinks it's going to be through Rachel, well, then Benjamin can't die. Why does he not believe? He, he, he's lost his trust. He's lost his hope. Does that mean he's going to hell? He missed his salvation moment. Does he need an altar call? I think that kind of thinking is stupid, actually. The grace of God, which is under you in the call, doesn't abandon you just because you forget for a moment. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And this is the story of Pharaoh's conversion, of Joseph's hope, and of Jacob's repentance yet again in the sight of a gospel he couldn't even imagine being true, which is the resurrected Joseph there, not in a coat of many colors, but cloaked like the sun, saying, here's the bread, eat. And again, if you can't see Jesus behind all of this as the fulfillment, please do. Huh? He sends the boys down. He doesn't expect much. Buy some grain so we don't die. Life sucks, taxes, blah, blah, blah. Joseph's governor over the land, he's got this thing hopping, clay tablets and desks and piles of grain and money everywhere. Over this time, he's going to basically buy all the property in the country from everybody with the grain. <laughs> yeah. it, it leads to such a centralization of power, by the way, that the, the following government will be unable to maintain any of it, which is the, the, the fall of the Middle Kingdom in some ways. We'll leave that story for another time. But and can you imagine now Joseph's in this like, hopping ancient world marketplace, gold coins and silver and again, packets of grain and donkeys pulling stuff and he's walking by and he sees these, these 10 guys standing in line with their, their mules and their staves. And, and where is Benjamin? Now he doesn't know. He just sees these 10 guys and he remembers who these 10 guys were. And so we get this whole game that we heard read about where he pulls them in and he says, are you honest men? I think you're spies, right? He has a good reason for that. I don't think you're honest men. How do I know you sold me into slavery as a boy? <laughs> yeah, that, you know. He doesn't let them know. Why? Because he wants to know, like, is Benjamin alive? Is Jacob alive? So he does this whole thing, right? Scares them, prays, weeps, hears them argue. Just bring me Benjamin. Let me know, guys, that you learned from doing to me that it wasn't right. And indeed, you know, the, the whole story where they're going back to Jacob and Jacob's going back and forth with them, they see what they've done to their father. They broke him. 
They absolutely broke their father. They had a guy who was a king, a sheik with herds and armies and his own brother who had more, nonetheless, like sees him as glorious and welcomes him. And the, the people of Shechem welcome him. And now he's a broken man. And they did that to him. They know that. Joseph doesn't know that. Joseph doesn't know that they know that. The whole game is for that. Now we're getting low on time. We're going to jump past what we read toward the end of it. You know, so I'm jumping over the story where Joseph does this thing with him. He throws them in prison for a while, and it wasn't the white-collar prison. I guarantee you that. Right? He pulls them back out. He says, okay, I'll be nice. I'll just keep one of you. He kicks them out. It's like they had a choice, right? They weren't able to say no. But they have Simeon bound with chains and taken back into the dungeon. Can you imagine watching your brother just taken away by, by like, the federal government? And then being told, come back with your other brother? Right? Go tell dad that? It's no wonder they're like, God is punishing us. That's what, that's what they say. God is punishing us. And we deserve it, which is, it's called repentance, really. That, that is repentance. They, they got it. And when they go back to Jacob, you start to see it come out. It's not all the way there yet, but it starts to come out. So uh, chapter 42, um, I think we're just going to start at uh, verse 34, where they relate to Jacob what Pharaoh threw Joseph says, bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. I think he meant that from the heart, yeah. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Nobody believes it was put there by a human. They all think God is doing this. Again, God is punishing them. How is he punishing them? By giving them their money. They already are accused of being spies. And they go back and they say, why didn't you pay for it? You took the money after you. How'd you do that, you wicked men? That's how they see this working out, right? This money means they're dead when they go back anyway to look at it. (laughs) And yet they, they need to go back to get Simeon. Right? Except dad won't let them have it. Verse 36, he said, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin, the son of my right hand. No. All this has come against me. That line right there is worth highlighting with like a red pen. All this has come against you, Jacob? Who, who did that? God, perhaps, you think? Why aren't you crying out to God, Jacob? What's going on, man? Well, he's too busy trying to protect Benjamin to trust that God knows what he's doing. It's easy. It's an easy trap. And we fall into it all the time. I'm not trying to like, get you to like say, I'm not a Christian. No, no, I'm trying to get you to say every day you're going to have to face this with something. It may not be your kids. It might be your parents. In fact, it often is for young kids. Huh? And it may be some other hero or mentor. But see it then. It doesn't come against you. God gives it to you, and it's good. Reuben tries to intercede, you know, kill my two sons. If I don't bring him back, put, put him in my hands. I will bring him back to you. But Jacob says, my son will not go down with you. His brother is dead, and he's convinced. He's convinced his brother is dead, and he is the only one left, Benjamin. How this must feel to the other boys. Huh? Uh, if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs to Sheol. Again, that's hardly, um, I know my Redeemer lives. That's hardly, I saw, the, I saw the, the ladder to heaven and the angels fight for us. So go save your brother because I know God's with you. There's none of that. 
He's at the, he's at the, he's in the depths. He's at the bleakest point, the point where Joseph had to be when he was in the prison on some level, the point where you're going to be at some point in your life, if not regularly, where it's all too much. You don't know what to do, and you're trying to hold on, and it can't be what you want, and be still. Is actually all God says at that moment. Slow down. No hurry. No rush. There's a plan in place. The promise is there. The prophecy has been put there. The covenant is established. And for us today, this is a long way from one guy had a dream. He is risen. Hallelujah. The testimony of the ancient church resounds throughout history with the creeds and the confessions and the witnesses of those who believe. We are surrounded by such a cloud of nations and tongues and peoples who have not failed to believe that this word will overcome everything. There is no reason to believe that your life, your spirit, or the American blah can stop it. I ask you, I ask you, dream with me like it's all true. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.